Welcome back to Plastic Surgery Decoded, the podcast where we demystify plastic surgery and provide a foundation for understanding it, whether you're actually considering a procedure or you're just curious. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Regina Newhan, and in this season number four, you'll find a new approach, including interviews and covering a wide variety of subjects. But after you listen to this episode, I encourage you to go back and really explore the previous seasons as they are full of valuable information. You get to pick and choose what to learn about next. Season one covers common aesthetic or cosmetic surgery topics and skincare, while season two explains reconstructive surgery topics. Then season three goes over general questions about plastic surgery. Remember that this podcast reflects my experience and opinion, as well as those of any guest interviewed. It is not intended to provide medical advice, nor is it a substitute for a formal consultation with your physician. So stay tuned for this interesting journey we'll take together in the ever-expanding world of plastic surgery. Let's go. Lip lifts are certainly having a moment, aren't they? But actually, they've been around in one form or another for quite some time. The lips are so important as a focal point of attractiveness and communication, leading many people to seek options to reverse the signs of aging or enhance the features they were born with. There had been some early surgical procedures devised to adjust lip position and contour with varying degrees of success, but then when lasers and injectables like filler and Botox came along, more lip treatments were focused on the non-surgical. That may be enough for early or temporary intervention, but sometimes a surgical procedure is required to produce the magnitude of improvement a person may be looking for. Yet, one must be aware of some one-size-fits-all procedures that are out there. And that's where Dr. Gerald O'Daniel comes in. Practicing in Louisville, Kentucky, he has developed a customized approach for evaluating the lips and his own technique for maximizing results of lip lifting. Here he shares his thought process and gives us some insights on not only when to do this, but what to expect afterwards as well. Let's listen now. Dr. Gerald O'Daniel both went to medical school and did his initial residency in otolaryngology, ENT, in Louisville, Kentucky. After that, he did a plastic surgery residency at Washington University at St. Louis. He then went on for extensive further fellowship training in craniofacial surgery. He's become a highly accomplished surgeon, academically and clinically, with numerous awards, who is now in private practice in Louisville. Welcome, Dr. Jerry O'Daniel. Thank you, Regina. I'm so happy to be here this morning. Great. Well, thanks for sharing some time with us. Hey, you know, first, I'm just curious. I want to ask you, what interested you in plastic surgery? Well, my background is in art, and I always love sciences. And when going through my residency, I thought that trauma surgery and general surgery was my calling. However, Mm -hmm. an early exposure to a famous craniofacial surgeon named Paul Tessier, where as an intern I was allowed to uh, scrub with him for a week uh, during my internship, changed my life. The way he, um, Paul Tessier, for the listeners, is a the founder of craniofacial surgery, who founded techniques to correct the congenitally deformed infant um, and changing the shapes of their heads, moving the eyeballs around. And it was so fascinating that he was a true sculptor of human flesh and bone. I said, that was what I needed to do and changed the trajectory of my career. That's fantastic. And he was uh, such a great founder to help children with birth defects that otherwise were not being treated. So how wonderful and what great exposure for you. 
Well, tell us about uh, your practice. What type of patients and cases do you focus on mainly, and how long have you been in practice? I left academic medicine in 1993, came to Louisville, Kentucky, and took over as the chief of pediatric and craniofacial surgery at the Children's Hospital, and I did that for 20-plus years. So I had a mixed practice of cosmetic surgery uh, with a big focus on congenital deformities. And about uh, 10 years ago, I confined my practice to uh, aesthetic surgery as I brought on younger surgeons to take over the uh, demanding uh, call of craniofacial surgery. So now my practice is aimed about 90% facial aesthetic surgery geared toward the eyes, face, lip, and neck uh, surgeries. Quite sure those are very popular. And growing all the time. Yes, yes. Well, you know, let's kind of get right into a little background. We're talking about lip lifting today, but could you explain to the listeners how the lip area shows age? Well, first of all, before we even talk about that, let's talk about the importance of the lips in human uh, communication, human emotion, just human life. And if you Wonderful. And if you look at the evolution of the perioral region, uh, and you look at the changes from lower mammalian uh, species moving through primates to uh, the Homo sapien, you see that the mouth takes on the biggest change in the face, in addition to the cranial vault as well for frontal lobe development. However, if you think about communication, we're told at a very young age, always look at someone in the eye when you're talking to them and always watch their mouth when they're talking to you so you can tell if they're telling you the truth. And so yeah. it becomes a focal point of communication. Now, understanding how important it is, think about the most recent COVID pandemic. There were studies that came out that showed that the impact of the mask on the sense of attractiveness. There was a, a paper that came out of the uh, Facial Attractiveness and Perception Center at Pennsylvania, and they showed that if a person had a mask on, it changed the perception of attractiveness. For instance, they showed patients with and without mask, the patient without a mask who was deemed to be less attractive without a mask was found to be more attractive with a mask. Now, interestingly, the people who were deemed to be most attractive with, without the mask were found to be less attractive with the mask on. So it really, we've always thought that the eyes were the window to the soul, but the reality is the perioral region, the mouth in particular, has a significant impact on our perception of attractiveness, in addition to the, the need for communication. Because the next thing to think about during the COVID pandemic was the impact of covering the mouth in young children with developing language skills. Their language skills have become diminished or delayed because the just covering their faces for a, a short period of time because development is occurring so quickly. Mm -hmm. So the lips, uh, the importance can't be overemphasized in the human emotions, human communication, and our interactions as humans. So, as we uh, look at the perioral region, there's a huge variation in attractiveness to the lips, and it's going to be culturally driven for the most part. In today's world, we have such a, uh, an amalgam of attractiveness that lips of all different shapes can be found attractive. 
But what is common in all lips across all cultures that as we age, our body undergoes changes. And what we know today is that as we age, we have diminishment in the volume in our face. We lose fat, not only around our eyes, but we lose it in the lips. So the lips become thinner and the thickness from the inside of the mouth to the outside of the mouth becomes thinner. The lips themselves then start to elongate. And the interesting thing about the elongation is that most of the elongation is in the corner of the lips. And it's easy to understand from a layman's term, if you think about the central part of the lips attached to the nose, the nose is attached to the skull, and nothing moves. The corner of the lip, though, is free moving, and that's where the smile, the frown, um, the movement from far out to the corners when we're smiling big to a tight pucker for a kiss, the the movement is, is profoundly large. And this area has no attachments to bone, so it descends. Settles and kind of sags a little bit, yeah. Settles and sags. And then think about the lines. We call them smoker's lines. But the reality is, yeah, maybe smokers get them more often, but it's not because they're sucking on a cigarette. It's it's because of loss of volume and that chronic movement of the muscles. So there's attachments from the deep muscles to the skin, which allow us to express communication to each other. Uh, So when we pucker, when we smile, the the muscle has to move the skin, which creates the expression. And over time, those creases become much deeper, compounded by loss of volume, compounded by elongation. And then lastly, remember that as we age, we no longer make collagen, and collagen is the basis of elastin, the elastic component of the face. In our skin, yeah. In our skin. So at age 20... The human face has 100% of the collagen and elastin it's ever going to have. By the age 70, you only have 20% of the collagen you had at age 20. So Mm -hmm. all of those things play in. So rejuvenation or changing or improvement of the lips in the aging face is multifactorial. Yeah, that's fascinating, actually, when you really think about it. And uh, thank you for pointing out the importance of the lips as well to our culture and our natural existence, really. So given those basics of what happens to the lips as we age, what is it that people typically come to you asking to change? Are they specific or they just say, hey, I don't have the lips I used to have uh, or I was never born with, you know, the look I want, uh, fix that? Or what is it that they tell you they would like to change? You know, it's interesting that a lot of the perception of our clients, the consumer, are driven by industry. And uh, um, yes. and because the industry has created products, they create scenarios that have been approved for use of their products. Therefore, the consumer-driven marketing drives people in with the idea that possibly uh, fillers or, you know, everything's called Botox. You know, I see celebrities who had bad surgery. It must have been the Botox. Uh, but <laughs> but it's interesting, most people don't exactly know what they're looking at. They just know that things have changed and they can't put a finger on it. Uh, mm-hmm. In my practice in particular, I've developed a method for evaluating clients. In my practice, is more aging face than it is the younger patient population just by evolution. And I have patients bring their pictures in from each decade of life, starting from their high school graduation pictures through their 20s, through their 30s, 40s. And the average patient in my most recent publications of getting surgery for me is 61 years of age. So that means you have four to five decades of photographs. And we scan those, put them on the computer, and then we put them up for the patient to look at. 
This is what you used to look like. This is what you look like now. Now, what do you see? Mm -hmm. I've been doing this for 20 plus years and I've uh, published and talked and tried to teach other doctors that this is a great way to learn, not just your own skill and how people age, but what do people really see in themselves? And that is quite variable. Yeah, I can imagine. But what a great illustration for the patients to be able to understand what has happened to them as they have naturally aged over the decades. So I think that's a wonderful technique. Well, I think at the end of the day, if we in life can understand why we do something or why we exist or why we're going to do surgery, what we're going to do becomes much less important than the why. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. Well, you know, we're here to talk about surgical lip lifts, but let me just first ask, are there some non-surgical options for treatment? Um, what would you treat with, say, injectables, if, as we've just alluded to? Uh, and when is someone actually a candidate for a surgical treatment? So what we do is evaluate the pictures from when they're younger and when they're older and specifically look at variations uh, over time. We look at what bothers the patient. So non-surgical intervention can be uh, multifactorial as well. So we have non-surgical tools, which include neuromodulators, which is the Botox, like the word Kleenex, mm -hmm. is the catch-all phrase for all agents that we inject into the skin which reduce the movement of muscles. So around the mouth, if people have early onset of fine lines or deeper lines, we can use little micro doses of Botox. And it has to be micro because we want to stop a little bit of the movement. Yeah. Too much Botox, suddenly the lips don't move and yeah, it's a good. disaster. <laughs> it's not good. Yeah. Hard to suck on a straw. <laughs> and, and your emotions go bad and, and your companions may be disappointed. So that becomes one level. The second thing you think about is skin is covering the lips and the skin has uh, characteristics that are qualitative in nature. We talk about the skin the same way we talk about diamonds, imperfections, purity, color, texture, etc. So we can do simple things like just improving skin quality around the lip using um, high grade medical skincare products. Uh, we can use energy devices that are non-ablative, like microneedling, microneedling with PRP, uh, microneedling with uh, some energy source like radio frequency. And these are quick recovery and can give you some modest improvement in texture. More aggressive treatments are more invasive for the skin texture can be ablative lasers that actually peel the layer of skin off. And these can be uh, erbium, uh, I prefer CO2, or it can be a, a deep chemical pill. In these circumstances, seven to 10 days of recovery uh, for the skin to heal. The third thing we look at is going to be volume. As we age, we talked about this volumetric loss. And so as the lips deflate, not only do they get skinnier and longer, but they unfurl. If you think about the lip from the side view, from the nose to the lip, it's got a beautiful curl and it goes upward. And then there's a beautiful line that goes between the red part of the lip and the white part of the lip, which we call the white roll. And this junction gets lost and it's nice to restore that. And with a modest amount of filler, you can restore it. Uh, what we see and what people hate and really what is one of the major barriers for a client to have fillers in their lips are the ones that are poorly done. So you're, what you're trying to do is to restore the volume to a minimal amount. 
the problems we're seeing is that sometimes people are trying to cure all these other problems with filler, and it yeah. creates a very unusual look. Yeah, and overdone. And particularly when it's the ratio, because they go back to the aesthetic standards. The upper lip in the ideal world should be 1, and the lower lip should be 1.7. It's the, the divine ratio. Mm -hmm. The most recent studies have shown that if you take a group of people, show them pictures, um, and ask them which is most attractive, and they use three ratios, one to one, one to 1.7, and one to two. I mean, the upper lip is the same size as the lower lip. The upper lip is a little smaller to 1.7 than the lower lip, or the lower lip is twice the size of the upper lip. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, the study showed that people found that the upper lip being half the size of the lower lip was the most attractive. The second attractive was the divine ratios described by Pythagorean 3,000 years ago, 1 to 1.7. The traditional. The traditional golden ratio was second, and least attractive was 1 to 1. Interesting, now, yeah. And, and with fillers, it's so easy to make the upper lip bigger. You create a larger upper lip, and so it's not the size that people see. It's the change in ratio because we're all experts at attractiveness. We just don't know why. <laughs> That's a good point, yes. And, and so when something doesn't fit within our aesthetic uh, expectations, like an upper lip being bigger than the lower lip, we think it's too big. Well, yeah, the upper lip's too big, but it's not the size overall. It's the ratio that's more important. With some people or many people finding that one to two ratio being most attractive, how much of that do you think is related to media uh, bombarding us with depictions of people who have had augmented lips and that sort of becomes the new standard, the new norm? Well, there's absolutely no question that the evolution of beauty is driven by trends. Mm -hmm. You know, I grew up in the 60s and 70s with very large lips, and Twiggy was in style. Mm -hmm. And Twiggy had very thin lips. And so big lips were very out of style, and even the actresses in that age were trying to make their lips appear smaller. Oh, gosh. Uh, so it's absolutely driven by media, by trends, uh, by young influencers mm -hmm. who already have naturally beautiful lips, and then they're you know, they're making a beast on. There's a great book called The Evolution of Beauty, mm. and it's a fascinating read for doctors and laymen alike, mm -hmm. uh, but it all comes down to the birds and bees, really. Well, so as we've talked about some of the non-surgical options, when do you transition someone to considering surgical intervention? And once you do that, what surgical options have traditionally been available? So the indications for lip shortening are driven by the patient seeing their pictures from their youth. And so once they see that their lip has gotten longer, it really is something they can't unsee because it's like imprinted on their mind. And, and in these circumstances, we make recommendation for surgical intervention to, quote, shorten the lip. So we're really not truly making the lip short just in that sense. We're also trying to reshape and restore the entire lip, not just the central part of the lip. Historically, we first had the suggestion of lip shortening in the 1980s, and it became very popular in the 1980s. I did a lot of it when I first was in practice. It's called a bullhorn lift, and it's all over social media now. It had the disadvantage of making the central lip too short and the side of the lip not short enough, and it gave people a rabbit look. And for the listeners, could you explain what that lip shortening procedure is, just physically what is done? 
So it looks like a very simple operation. It's shown as a simple operation on Instagram where you take a bit of skin underneath the nose. It's in the shape of the horns of a bull. Mm -hmm. Just following natural creases. Natural creases around the base of the nose. You take out a segment of skin and you pull the lip up and sew it to the nose, making it that much shorter by the amount of skin that you removed. Mm And it looks simple on paper, it's simple to do. However, the outcomes that you're trying to achieve are not quite as simple. Yeah. Through that procedure alone, you've shortened the central part, but you haven't done perhaps enough to improve the overall contour of the lip. So then what else can be done? Well, the central part of the lip is so easy to lift because once again, remember we talked about it's attached to the nose. Uh, and you take that out and you attach it back to the nose, it gets short very easily. The corners of the lip, however, are not attached to anything. They're free-floating. All the muscles in the face come to the corners of the mouth like the spokes of a wheel. And that allows us the infinite number of positions the corner of the mouth can go to. Smiling, frowning, depressed-looking, whatever it may be. And at rest, as it descends, it can make someone look even unhappy or sad or bitter. Use those types of negative connotations. So if we shorten the central lip and we're unable to shorten the corner of the lip, it exaggerates the slope from the central lip to the lateral lip, which gives you that beaver or rabbit look, but it also gives you a very unusual look. And unfortunately, if you look at Instagram now, and the poster child for this is Demi Moore, Their lip has been made so short centrally, it's a very odd look. Mm. And I ask a lot of my colleagues, I'm now in my last chapter of my surgical career, and I talk to colleagues in the same boat who are facial experts around the world, and we all used to do a lot of this, then we stopped doing it. Mm. And when I question them in different webinars and interviews and panels around the world, we all agree, we stopped doing it because... We made the lips too short. We were creating rabbits, and so it scared us. We stopped. Fair enough. But now it's popular again. It certainly is. Well, you have actually developed your own technique for lip rejuvenation. Would you uh, describe that in layman's terms for our listeners and, and tell us how you've modified things to get the type of results that you're interested in? Absolutely. So we just talked about how easy it is to make the central lip short. As you touched on, it's difficult to raise the corner of the lips. And this has been proven recently with an article published by a colleague out of uh, Norway, uh, Bern Vanderley, who looked at all the articles ever written about surgical and non-surgical elevation of the corner of the mouth. And he showed that none of them work. And the ones that attempted to work with surgery left you with a scar that mm-hmm. you couldn't, you could never get rid of. But you could not shorten the distance, surgically or non-surgically. Mm-hmm. So I have colleagues in Brazil who I've been collaborating with for the last six or seven years with something called a hemostatic net. And we first developed this technique to eliminate the risk of bleeding for facelift and necklace surgery. It looks pretty barbaric, but it serves a purpose. So hemostatic for the listeners means stopping bleeding, basically. Stopping bleeding, basically. And it's a very simple concept of taking a suture and suturing the skin to the underlying deep structure, whether it be muscle or fat, and you're eliminating a potential space where if you had bleeding, the bleeding could expand, which is Mm -hmm. called a hematoma. Mm -hmm. So stasis is to stop, and hemo is blood, so our concept was to stop bleeding. 
Um, what we found is we could leave this net on place for 48 to 72 hours and the skin stuck there. And it's like, wow, this is really pretty cool. So not only are we preventing the most common complication of facial plastic surgery, which is bleeding, mm -hmm. we're also putting the skin someplace and it's staying exactly where we want it. So we applied this idea to the brow and we published this a few years ago where we could lift the brow by separating the skin from the underlying muscle and then securing the skin to the underlying muscle in a new position, raising the brow, giving it a higher position with a better shape and leaving those simple sutures from the skin to the deep structures on for 48 to 72 hours and it stayed. It's fantastic. So I had patients in my office who would come back for filler and they were asymmetrical, meaning one side different than the other. Mm -hmm. um, and I couldn't fix it with fillers. I couldn't fix it with shrinking the skin with my lasers. Mm -hmm. So I had this idea to use this subnasal approach and detach the skin from the underlying muscle, reposition it, and then secure it with this simple suturing technique that we started using on the face. And by putting the skin in a new position on the muscles around the mouth, the skin and the corner of the mouth actually came up and stayed in place. It's like a reset for the corner of the mouth. It's a reset for the corner of the mouth because once again, it's not attached to anything else but the skin. Yeah. So I've done a, uh, over 200 of these. I've published two papers on it already. And we are showing that it is safe. It's extremely effective and it's becoming wildly popular with my international colleagues. Such a clever idea. It's great. It seems simple, but it's it's pure art. Yeah. The steps are very simple, yeah. uh, but putting the pieces together becomes the complicated part. Oh, gosh. Now, where do you perform this procedure? Is it in the office? Is it in an operating facility? Or what do you typically do? Uh, it can be performed in an office base. Uh, I do it in my surgery center because I like to control all my variables. I want the patient to be comfortable. Mm -hmm. I want the, to be able to concentrate on my artwork, not their comfort. So I have my nurse anesthetist that gives them an anesthetic agent that makes them sleepy and mm -hmm. comfortable. Uh, we do the surgery. They go home the same day. The Netting looks like a kitty cat because you've got this black sutures on both corners of the mouth, little whiskers. <laughs> <laughs> and typically, I'm not just doing the lip lift. I'm using fat to restore volume because remember, we talked about it's multivariable. Right. So I can safely do fat injections to give volume back. I also use a preparation of the fat called nanofat where we break the fat up and we pull out the beautiful growth factors that restore collagen, because remember collagen is being lost, yes. and we can inject that in the skin at the same time, and we can do all three of those safely in the same setting. Yeah, that's wonderful. And, and um, that combination approach probably augments the results that you achieve anyway, so fantastic. Uh, well, what is the recovery like for patients? If we're not doing the multi-approach with the fat and the, the nanofat in a younger patient, um, in a week, they look really pretty good. Now, there is decrease in the movement of the, the muscles around the face, and this happens with any type of lip lift because of the swelling from surgery. Mm, right. So anything we do surgically, uh, if you fall down and twist your ankle, there's going to be swelling. And the body can only resolve this swelling so quickly. Now, you look good, but the movement may be a little bit odd. 
so at two weeks, we're starting to see return of function of the mouth where you can actually see some of the lines from when you pucker. You can see the, the little mm -hmm. vertical pucker lines. Mm -hmm. um, the smile is starting to be elevate to where it's you can see the same amount of t uh, tooth show that you had before the procedure. And the aging lips, that's a problem. You, you see less tooth show, so you actually are seeing more at this point. Mm -hmm. Uh, the incision under the nose, probably the, the biggest thing that people notice, it, it itches. And because your lips move all the time, they feel it. They feel like, oh, this is so stiff. I, I, something's weird with my smile. Now, it looks normal, but it feels different. Mm -hmm. And that takes about three months for that itching to go away. Mm -hmm. And for, for some reason, uh, anytime we place an incision under the nose, people feel like their nose is running. There's that funny sensation, yeah. It's just a funny sensation. So I uh, did my wife's lip lift, for instance, last year, and her nose stayed red for three months because she kept on rubbing it. Oh, gosh. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't running. She just thought it was. Yeah. Uh, those little nerves are trying to get back to normal, and it takes a while. And by, by three months, things are normal. Early on, it can look like it's over-elevated because of the swelling. Hmm. And there's always some drift of the lips where it becomes longer looking at six months than it did at six weeks. Yeah. Uh, and we factor this into the procedure. Yeah, plan ahead. That's great. Well, what do you tell patients about how long the results are expected to last? Um, do, should they expect to need revision surgery in the future? Or we what? have a paper that's getting ready to come out in the Aesthetic Surgery Journal, and we've looked at the first 182 patients in our series and looking at all the applications. We're teaching doctors how to do it, and yeah. in that, we looked at this series and the complications that we encountered. I've presented this a number of times now in the last year all over the world at different society meetings. And the most common thing that we're seeing that requires revision is asymmetry, meaning that one lip is still a little different than the other. The risk for asymmetry is about 1% for a revisional surgery, which is a simple thing done in the office where you take just a, a millimeter more of skin excised out under local mm -hmm. anesthetic and it's a 10-minute procedure. Mm -hmm. The bigger thing that we've seen is the impact of fillers. Oh, interesting. 87% of my patients have had fillers previously in an attempt to restore their lips because yeah. they're already lip-centric. Yeah. And so they're coming to me to try to improve things. And so uh, what we have found in those patients who've had hyaluronic acid is that recovery can become a little less predictable. The more filler there is, the more difficult the recovery is. And the reason that is, the filler is something called hydrophilic. So it's hyaluronic acid is the most common filler used in the lip, and really the only filler that should be used in the lip because it's reversible. Mm -hmm. But the hyaluronic acid is a normal occurring molecule that's in each cell of the body. Mm -hmm. It absorbs water. That's what gives our skin the plumpness, is the hyaluronic acid. You see moisturizers that come out that have, quote, hyaluronic acid in them. Well, the hyaluronic acid is hydrophilic. Hydro is water. Philic is lover of. So this lover of water, when it's present in the lip, when we do the surgery, that swelling, the fluid that goes into the areas when we're doing the surgery is absorbed by the hyaluronic acid and it creates more swelling. And so that increases the recovery time. The other thing that we have seen is that some patients have so much filler in it because a lot of people get more filler and more filler and more filler because most providers 
you know, unfortunately only have a single tool. You know, they're not surgeons and don't really think about a surgical approach. And they get a tremendous amount of filler in their lips. And in those circumstances, the more hyaluronic acid, the more filler you have, the more swelling you have. So under those patients, I found that 7% of the patients who had hyaluronic acid in their lips pre-surgical had more asymmetry post-surgical that required me either to add a little filler because it was asymmetrical to start or we lost some of it during surgery, or I had to use hyaluronidase which is an enzyme that melts the hyaluronic acid to melt some of that to improve the asymmetry. And that happens 7% of the time. Interesting. And I would imagine with too much filler use, you start to stretch out the overlying tissues as well, and that could affect your results as those fillers gradually dissolve and go away. Uh, it depends on the timing of your procedure, I would imagine. Well, you're absolutely right, and that's a great point, Regina, because we're stretching the skin with this hyaluronic acid, and the more we stretch it, the more we're displaced in the natural structure of the lip. And so what I have found, you know, the best scenario for me is a person's committed to the surgery. Two weeks before the surgery, I'll use hyaluronidase and melt all the hyaluronic acid in their lips. What a clever idea. However... For that two-week period, from the time we melt it until they have their surgery, it looks horrible. Because not only does the hyaluronidase melt the hyaluronic acid that was injected, it also uncovers the damage done by the hyaluronic acid that was injected. And we think, though we haven't proven, that it dissolves the natural hyaluronic acid that exists in our cells anyway. So you end up with these lips that look like prunes, and it's like disaster. But our goal then is to restore it in a more natural fashion. Yeah, you're starting fresh then. That's great. I'm curious, is there any particular patient that you would not perform this procedure on or any contraindications, you think? There certainly are patients that aren't candidates for lip lifts. I think that what we are looking at is modifying the operation for these patients. For instance, if people had gummy smiles when they were younger, and most people who had excessive gum show when they smiled did not like their smile. Now, as they're aging, the way the, the face ages is the bone shrinks in our face. So the height of the face shrinks. So as we shrink the distance between our teeth and our eyes, for instance, the base of our nose, as we age, the smile becomes more attractive, and no longer do you see the gums, you see the teeth. And a person who had a beautiful smile when they're younger will often see that as they age, when they smile, they no longer see their teeth. So you know, the person who had too much tooth show when they were younger with gum showing suddenly become happy with their smile. However, the corners of their lip will fall. And so now uh, you see this exaggerated slant from the middle part of the lip to the corner of the lip. In those instances, a lip lift is a contraindication. You would not do it. Uh, what we've done in that circumstance, though, is I've modified my lip lift to take out just a little bit of skin in the corner of the nose, and then I can detach the skin. Not centrally. Not yeah. centrally. Do nothing centrally. Right. And then elevate the skin all the way down to even the jowls. I'll continue the, and release all the way to the neck and lift the whole corner of the mouth and the jowls up, and it takes the exaggerated slant of the lip and makes it horizontal. So you get 
for instance, from the central opening of your mouth, we call the aperture. Mm -hmm. uh, if you take a line and you draw it to the corner of the mouth, it becomes straight instead of a tilted downturn. And that downturn looks like you're sad or bitter, and we turn that into a more uh, bearable lightness, if you will. That's fantastic. Well, you know, um, in my experience, we plastic surgeons often strive to enhance a patient's appearance without drawing attention to it or being too obvious. Uh, especially regarding the face, we want the results to be subtle enough that no one else notices the patient had something done. Yet we do want the observers to notice that the patient is really looking good. Lip lifting is one procedure that seems to fall in that category. Have patients shared with you how others have reacted to their enhanced look after your procedure? Yeah, that's a really interesting point, Regina. And I think if you look at plastic surgery in general, it's regional, if you will. And we all have mm -hmm. have our styles. Um, right. You know, the, there's a certain look in California that's going to be different than it is here in Kentucky, different than it is in New York City. My brand, if you will, has been uh, sure. preservation of your original look. So by using pictures from patients when they were younger, what we're essentially doing is reversing what has happened. And so overall in the face, you know, in, in the simplest of terms, if we understand when we age, we lose volume, we gain volume, and things fall. To reshape the face and the lips, what we do is reverse the order. We add where you've lost, we subtract where you've gained, and we, we lift what's fallen and trying to shape to what you used to look like. And so though our goal is not to make a 60-year-old look 20, our goal is to make sure that they don't look different. As I've taught these techniques to doctors to use pictures from their youth, I've had pushback where doctors will suggest, well, they would never do that because you're suggesting to someone that you're going to make them look 20. And my counter to this is, no, I don't suggest anything. I give a sort of guarantee. I guarantee you won't look like a different person. But, you know, we never step in the same river twice. We're always a different person, and the river's always moving. Yeah, true. So I will make you look not different than you were when you were 20. So what I hear from my patients when they see their families, uh, when they see their, um, their significant others, uh, is that, wow, you look good, period. When they hear, you look great, what did you do? That's not necessarily a compliment. Excellent point. And, and when they say, oh, my God, what did you do? That is a disaster. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, there's a spectrum. Oh, that's great. Well, how important is surgeon qualifications or experience if a patient or a person is considering lip lifting or any type of lip rejuvenation? What's your feeling on that? Well, I think the first step is uh, for the provider is what tools do they have available? Uh, you know, the old saying, if you have a hammer, the whole world looks like a nail. Uh, and so the physician should have the full toolbox to offer someone so that they can choose what's best for that patient. Uh, because if you go to someone and they only do fillers, they're going to f try to fix the problem with fillers. And that creates its problems. The second thing is... Um, uh, experience, obviously, someone who's done it before, because it's this, like I say, the surgery itself is very easy. Just, it's not hard. The hard part is seeing what you're trying to get to and conceptualize it. And this comes with experience. You know, we don't have numbers on how many lip lifts are done per doctor in the country yet, because this is a new 
uh, a recurrence of a phenomenon. But if you take facelifts, for instance, the average plastic surgeon in the country does 10 facelifts a year. You know, and you do something once every six weeks. You're not trying to really improve and hone your skills. You're actually just trying to get through it from start to finish in a safe manner, which is always our, you know, our creed, never do harm. But once you're starting to do, you know, 10 a month, now you're starting to really hone your craft. So I think the number that have been done are critical. And the way a client can figure this out is you you interview your surgeons. I mean, you're not obligated to anybody. You interview them. They should show you examples. It's like show and tell. You know, you think about your 30 plus years of education, Regina, you were reduced back to show and tell. <laughs> you know, That's right. <laughs> well, Never thought of it that way. You know, here's the pictures. This is what I did on my summer vacation. Yeah, right. Uh, and so photographs are critical. And so what we've done for 22 years, um, since I've got uh, probably more than that now, 24 years, when I first got my digital camera and my mirror image digital archives, we started giving patients pictures of themselves after every visit for every operation. So for the initial consult, we give them their pictures from the consult, uh, showing their youthful pictures to their aging pictures. That acts as a blueprint so they know what we talked about. That gives them, you know, instead of notes, me using my words, what I did, they had their photographs and then they're marked and said, this is what we're talking about. Then each visit, including the very first visit when that crazy looking netting is on we give them before and after pictures so they can see where they are and we do that with each subsequent visit each time and that does three things number one it allows the client the patient to understand what we did and it allows me to ask a very hard question do you like it and are you happy you know and that's something that we try to run from but i think anything we're doing in life we we try to teach our children take responsibility for what you do and stand behind it uh, this gives us the opportunity to take responsibility uh, the second thing it does it gives me the feedback loop so i can see the efficacy of what i've done do, do i like what i've done that uh, could i've done it better oh wow that's really good maybe what did i do so i can do that again uh, so there's lots of information and it makes me be honest with myself uh, because you know, I typically only like to find information that confirms what I already believe because that's the most comfortable place to be. But you know, <laughs> honesty is much more important. Yeah. <laughs> and then the third thing it's done for me over the last 20 some years, these people take their pictures and they're overwhelmingly happy because no one remembers what they used to look like typically. You know, they can't even remember what they had for dinner the night before, much less what they looked like the, you know, the year before. Sure. They take their pictures and they show them to their friends and families. And so it becomes an internal marketing uh, component. I mean, I, I have patients that come to me from hairdressers from South Dakota who happen to see their pictures uh, when they went home. And so I get these referral patterns from the most obscure places because of those photographs. Oh, that's great. Those are some wise words. Well, as we're wrapping things up, are there any lasting thoughts you'd like to leave the listeners with about lip lifting? Well, the one thing I would caution is try not to get your information all from Instagram. Um, yeah. It's being driven uh, aggressively. What I'm seeing is that this lip lift has become so popular, and there's so many particularly young people that are being shortened in the central lip so short that as they age, the corner of the lip is going to continue to fall, and it's going to become even more exaggerated. Mm-hmm. 
it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out because the young doctors don't have the experience that we older guys do when we stopped doing the lip lift 25 years ago on a common basis. And our listeners need to understand not how great it can be, but how bad it could be and try to understand it's that corner of the lip that matters, not the central lip. Oh, yes, you're exactly right. Well, Dr. Jerry O'Daniel, you've given the listeners such a great plethora of valuable information. Thank you for being with us here today. And it was a lot of fun chatting with you. Regina, thank you for the opportunity to join you. It's so good to see you. I, I remember back when we first met 30 years ago. And you, oh my you haven't changed a bit. The, the audience doesn't have the pleasure to see your beautiful face, but you've, you've remained the same and your, your spirit is even more beautiful. Thank you, oh. Regina. Oh, you're awfully kind. Thank you so much. Take care. Take care. Well, that's our show for today. Hope you enjoyed it and learned something too. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Please share this podcast with someone else who might be interested. And while you're at it, check out the podcast website for related topics to explore. It's www.plasticsurgerydecoded.com. And as always, thank you for listening to Plastic Surgery Decoded.